0: Please rise for the reading of the Word of God. I invite you to open your Bible in the book of Judges, chapter 15, as we continue our series on the book of Judges. As you open your Bible, I just want to say that I came this evening with a great joy in my heart, but also trembling with fear. Because this is a great, great privilege. But it's even a greater responsibility. So even before we read our text, I want you to go to the Lord in prayer. Please pray with me. O Lord, our Lord who art in heaven, we stand before you this evening in prayer because you are the Lord Almighty. Thank you for your revelation. And for your work in our lives. Lord, I know the work is your work, not mine. So I cry out for you this evening. This sermon, these words I am about to say... ...without your Holy Spirit will be empty words, worthless. So may the words of scriptures, the word of your revelation... ...find each heart here tonight by your grace... In Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So, Judges chapter 15, the whole chapter. So, take heart, it's a a long one. (laughs) After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines, and set fire to the staked grain and to the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they say, Samson, the son-in-law of the teen knight, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistine came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit." And he struck them heap and tide with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Eton. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah say, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Eden and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we might give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, as he bones melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hands and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, hips upon hips, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hands, and the place was called Ramath lehi And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have this great salvation by the hand of your servant And shall I now die of thirst And fall into the hands of the uncircumcised And God split open the hollow place That is at Lehi And water came out from it And when he drank His spirit returned And he revived Therefore the name of was called In-Hakori. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, 20 years. You may be seated. This is the word of God. I want to, to start by sharing something by myself. I am a huge movie fan. Uh... Alongside with reading books, probably watching movies is my, my main hobby. Uh, everybody who knows me knows that not a week goes by without me watching a movie. Probably more than one. <laughs> but it's not just entertainment, actually. The reason that I like so much about movies is that in movies, as in art in general, we can find uh, what I call a social substratum. Uh, What I mean by that is is art is always putting on the spot all we experience as human beings. It works like an x-ray of our society's soul, if I can say it that way. And That is exactly what makes a good artist, and in this case, a good writer, a good movie director, is the power of telling good stories. Good writing, good stories, good plots is what makes good movies. And because of that, I mean, it's inevitable. Every time I'm reading my Bible especially the Old Testament, I start to, to build images in my mind as I'm going through the text as if it was a sort of a movie, you know? It, it's inevitable. It's involuntary, actually. It's like when you read Psalms and, and Jeremiah, it, it's poetry. Like, you were reading Ruth. It's like a novel. You were reading Joshua. It's like an epic, like war battles. And... Anyway, it's like my mind works. I can't help. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the, a sub called comedy of errors. But that's the genre that comes to my mind when I'm reading Judges, actually. And, and I think I need to explain a little bit that. Because comedy nowadays is... Complicated. <laughs> the, the problem with comedy today, as I think with all other genres, uh, it has lost much of its sophistication. To, to do a comedy, you just need to put a bunch of silly, goofy stuff together. Maybe add a dozen of bad words in the, in the middle. And there you have it. That's contemporary comedy. But that's not how comedy was born, especially when I'm talking about Comedy of Errors. Comedy of Errors is named after a work by William Shakespeare, you probably know that already, uh, that carries this same name. He composed a story full of absurdities, nonsense, unusual situations in which you're reading, you don't quite know where this story is going. But at a certain point, more towards the end, you realize the mastery of that plot. I mean, we are talking about William Shakespeare, right? You can't expect nothing less than mastery. But, but this is a comedy of errors. It's when you have misadventures, absurdities, odd situations that leads to a mastery conclusion. One has to be a very good writer in order to write a comedy of errors. And why am I talking about comedy, plots, and stories? Well, let's be honest. That's not going to be the first time you're going to listen to a sermon on Samson. Right? Probably not even the second or the third or the fourth time. And I, in particular, I have an issue with sermons in the Old Testament... That almost every single time looks like a collection of random stories that you should cop some specific behaviors and avoid others. It always sounds like some sort of plan that God has, where now he thinks he's going to. Uh, now that he thinks the plan is going to work. He will finally manage to save the people, his people. But something happens in the middle that, unfortunately, he can't manage to save the people. It's quite simplistic. God has been trying to save his people, but he couldn't find an effective way to do it so far. So, while we are waiting for that, let's copy this certain pattern of behaviors that the Bible offers and avoid Other kinds of behavior here. It's like, let's be brave like David. Let's be faithful like Daniel. Let's be sharp like Moses. Don't be like Saul. Don't be stubborn like Samson. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that the Bible doesn't provide good examples that we can emulate or bad ones that we should avoid. It definitely does. But that's not the point. The Bible is not about that. Because if it were, I would say it's, it's a bad story. <laughs> it's, it's a poor plot, in my opinion. It's a story without layers. There is no levels of meaning. It's what I consider a bad spot. But tonight, hopefully, I want to offer a different view of this account on Samson. <clears throat> I want to help you to look to this account actually to the whole bible if I may through new eyes and realize the mastery of the one who wrote this plot. A plot so exciting, filled with turning points that makes the best writer in the world ashamed and diminished. So that's, that's my goal. As we approach the text, I want you to remember some important things that we have to bear in mind in order to understand what's going on in Judges chapter 15. Judges chapter 15 is about Israel living in the promised land, right? You remember the whole thing, Okay. Israel is the people that God chose for himself. They are not just a chosen people, an elect people, but also a people with a promise and a people with a task. If you remember Exodus 33, specifically in verse 5, the Lord gives Israel a commandment and also a promise. If you remember the verse, Exodus 33. Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. You probably remember that, right? God promises Israel a land, a place to be. That was basically the text task, the task of a, a judge, actually. To lead the people in applying God's law towards his, this promise that God has made. Not just towards, but in the land itself. That's why it's judge. The, the, the judge is not a king. He doesn't rule. He, he applies God's rule, right? So, for this very reason, I believe Samson was the greatest of the judges because he came specifically with the task of delivering the people. And not just that, he had his birth announced. You remember a couple Sundays ago, he was the only judge whose birth was announced. We know from the scriptures that having the birth announced is a very significant thing. Judges chapter 13 says that the angel of the Lord appeared. And if you remember verse 5, what this angel of the Lord says? Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And he gives them instructions about what the son will be. And at the end of the verse it says, And he will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is a picture. What a picture of a deliverer who was announced by the angel of the Lord to free his people from oppression and bondage. This is a messianic picture. It's going to happen again with Samuel But more important than that, with Jesus, remember? Jesus was announced. Samson was announced. But here is the first irony of this text. There's an irony going on here. Because we've been listening for two Sundays already about the life of Samson. As the one who was supposed to be a perfect representation of Christ. And he's actually a perfect representation of the People of Israel itself. Stubborn, selfish, always seeking its own interests. So let's look at Israel's situation here in chapter 15 or text and compare to the promise that had been made generations before. Let's compare Judge 15. With many generations before. If you you don't have to open. I'm going to just read two verses for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 20. God gives them explicitly commandments. When you go out to war against your enemies. And see horses and chariots. And an army larger than your own. You shall not be afraid. For then for the Lord... Your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In the verse 16, he says, But in the cities of this people, uh, but in the cities of this people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall save alive nothing. He makes one exception in verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labors for you and and shall serve you. God left clear instructions to wipe out those people. Literally leaving nothing alive. With the exception of if they surrendered, they could live serving the people of Israel. With forced labors. This is Deuteronomy 20. What is the picture here in Judges 15? Israel being ruled by the Philistines. They are the one who serves them. And not just that, not only <clears throat> is the great judge of Israel, Samson, a part of this, but he also takes a Philistine woman for himself. He marries with the pagan people and makes the same mistake we've seen since Genesis 6 the mixing of God's holy people with the people from this world. The people that was elected to rule is being ruled and oppressed. They are not just serving the Philistines, but marrying and living among them. What a irony. It is curious how Samson is a perfect representation of human race. We always think so highly of ourselves. We have God's law in front of us. But you know, if God only knew how I am really like, how I have self-control, how I can handle, we bargain the law of God according to our own desires. It's exactly how the book of Judges over and over again describes it. Remember many chapters, and the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We give ourselves to the world, seeing what it has to offer us in return. When we realize the world is already our master, we are enslaved. And become servants of the world. We exchange the will of God, who free us to be slaves of the world, of our desires. This is the picture that chapter 15 presents to us here. But here's the main point where we have to pay attention to the Lord's action in history. We have to pay attention and remember ourselves that this is not a story without a plot. This is part of the history of redemption. So come with me and let's look to the verse 1. What's going on in verse 1? Samson is coming back. I think you remember last Sunday we had a sermon in chap- chapter 14. It didn't end very good, right? <laughs> now in verse 1... Samsung is coming back We just had Valentine's Day this week, right? So maybe the feeling of buying A gift before going home And imagining Our wife's reaction Is still fresh in our minds, right? If you did like I did You probably bought flowers And chocolate Well, Samsung got a goat Dude, this is solid, right? Next time I want to try the FA. (laughs) He got a goat. This man had his expectation up there, I bet. But if you remember what just took place in in chapter 14, uh, which we heard the sermon last week, Samson's wedding party did not end very well. Indeed... uh, He killed 30 men, 30 Philistines men. So maybe flowers and chocolates won't be enough to fix this mess, right? Maybe a goat would, but... But actually what Samson is trying to do, he's trying to consummate his wedding. So he had this mess in his wedding party. He kills a bunch of men and he stay away for a moment. Maybe he is refreshing his mind saying, man what I just did I just killed my wife's friends what a mess so maybe I'm going to buy this goat and try to make things up right trying to fix things and he's trying to consummate his marriage he, he's trying to finish what he has started but in verse 2 we, we already have a great turning point if you look at verse 2 A big turning point is about to happen because his wife has been giving away to another man. And her dad says, I really thought you utterly hated her. It's interesting here that in Hebrew, the word used to hate here is the same word that appears in the divorce formula in Deuteronomy 24. It's not just hate. As we used to, to say, "I hate this, I hate that." no it 's a very specifically formal term It's the term using divorce. In another words, what I 'm trying to say here is Israel and the Philistines already lived it so mixed up that the Philistines knew enough the law of the Hebrew people. Her father was clever. And got a perfect way out to unmarry Samson. After what just happened. And this is a lesson Samson had to learn. And so should we. When we are living in intimate relationship with sin. We tend to think that we can have a relationship of mutual satisfaction. That we can please ourselves. And... No, we can't. Because sin is is a slaver, And he becomes a master over us. Samson had a disastrous episode in chapter 14. Because he thought that by marrying that woman, he could celebrate normally. But he forgot that he was mixing with the oppressors. He forgot that the only possible end... Is death. And here again, he thought that by coming back home with gifts, he could fix everything and everything would be fine. But he was dealing with cunning people. It works like that with us, actually. Because we are gifted with God's promises of grace and mercy. We think that if, if we exchange the Lordship of Christ... For the lordship of Satan, he will too be gracious and benevolent. And by no means, my brothers. Not at all. Maybe you know someone in a similar situation. Maybe you haven't found yourself in a situation like, like that. Where you are always trying to patch up a situation, you know? Always trying to make things right. But the situation only gets worse and worse and worse. The reason for that is very simple, actually. There is no making right apart from the will of God. God is the only one who can fix for good what is bad. As we continue our text here, I just want to pause you for a sec. I want to draw your attention to what has been taking place in here. I want you to remember the way I started the sermon and the passages I quoted so far, especially uh, Judges thirteen five, when the angel of the Lord promises that Samson will begin to free the people from the hands of the Philistines. You remember that? Because I think this is exactly where many people get lost in the story focusing on many misadventures that happened throughout the entire book of Judges. They missed the big picture. In the midst of this chaos, in the midst of so many bad decisions that Samson made, his lack of faithfulness to the Lord, in the midst of all this, what is happening is exactly what the angel of the Lord said would happen even though Samson decided to take a woman from within the people they were supposed to subdue the plan to have a beautiful and happy marriage was thwarted by a misadventure a disagreement this disagreement caused the death of 30 Philistine men spoil and garments taken from them and now if you continue in the, in the verse 3 on 3 to 5 actually Things are going to get even more serious. Samson gets angry again and catches 300 foxes to set fire in the Philistine lands. And what strikes me most uh, is the situation, is the disposition, the attitude of the people of Israel. Samson revolted against the Philistines not long ago, one chapter ago actually, and he's about to do it again, one more time. What we would expect is the people rising alongside him, remembering the Lord's promise and going to battle alongside him to subjugate the oppressors. That, I mean, that's the, the logic behind the whole thing. But in this chapter, in, verse, in chapter 15, we see Samson alone. If you go back a few chapters, you, you remember Gideon? Gideon stood up as a judge, and he had 300 men, Israelites, to fight on his side. What do we see here in chapter 15? is Samson having to use 300 foxes because there wasn't even one Israelite by his side. Such was the inertia of the people of Israel. In verse 4 and 5, we have a beautiful picture unfolding in front of us in the text. Samson doing what he was assigned to do. The land of the Philistine is on fire. I mean, he catched the, the fox and set fire. In verse 1, you can say that at the time of wheat harvest, so wheat harvest probably is that dry land. So you can measure the fox running around the land and everything is burning. And we have the Philistine lands on fire. Fire in Scripture is used to picture judgment. The Philistine People who symbolize God's enemy people are experiencing judgment by the hands of the judge man, the deliverer. What a picture we have unfolding just in front of us. In verse 6 and 7, it doesn't, it doesn't stop here. See now what happens in verse 6. The Philistines blame Samson's father-in-law for what happened and go after him and burn him and his daughter for what just happened. The threatening which they made to his wife in chapter 14, they carry out in chapter 15. They saw that the shame had come upon them on account of her intercourse with Samson. Now, in addition to having their land and supplies burned, which probably will generate an economic crisis for years to come. Now the Philistines begin to destroy each other. The order has been shaken. So Samson promises revenge, and he kills more Philistines. This is a clear picture of judgment going on. Again... We see an unexpected reaction from the people of Israel. If you look to verse nine on, it's a very unexpected reaction reaction from the people of Israel. Such is the lethargy of this people. They are witnessing great deliverance from their oppressors by the hand of Samson. They refuse to recognize it. The first and the second time that happened. And now that the seriousness has increased, instead of taking courage, they fear the Philistines. Israel does not think twice before bargaining with the enemy. But it hesitates to face the enemy, even witnessing the great action of liberation that was promised by God. People enslaved to sin has a captive mind. So what solution do they find? Instead of taking heart and joining Samson against the Philistines, they tie him up and make plans to hand him over to the enemy to avoid retaliation. In fact, that's what people have been doing with God's deliver since forever. This won't be the last time. Isn't that exactly what Judas did with our great deliverer? Negotiated with enemies to hand him over? A heart corrupted by sin rejects God's provision. What we see here seems to be a picture of a victory, victory of evil over good. Satan seems to be winning in this plot. This deliver is being tied up and handed over to the enemies. Just as it looked like a defeat of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being nailed to that cross. Dying in that cross. But God had already decreed what would be the true victory. Those ropes the bound Jesus were not the end. They were means. He rose from the dead, and today he sits at the right hand of the Father. He conquered death and was glorified. So if you, we see a little bit further in verse 14, I, I think verse 14 on is the climax of this text when Samson man, managed to free himself from his ropes. Actually, let's pay attention to how the Bible, the language the Bible used to describe this episode. Verse 14, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flags that has kept fire. And his bones melted off his hands. So actually, it wasn't Samson that managed to escape out, it was the Holy Spirit that gave him the power to do so. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Samson goes ahead and gets a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And this detail, I think, is important because if it, if it is fresh, the skull is still strong and has all his teeth in it. So you can imagine how sharp is this weapon. But another detail is, one more time, Samson doesn't care about his Nazirite vows. So he sees a piece of dead body, his jawbone, and he doesn't think twice He catches it and to achieve his revenge. Right? What is incredible is this great picture of... Despite the unfaithfulness of Samson to the Lord... The Lord is faithful to his promises. And he uses Samson to accomplish his purpose. After 30 dead men... Spoil and garment taken, more Philistine killed. We have now the climax of this story. With Samson, with a jawbone, striking 1,000 men. Can we imagine it? 1,000 men falling by the hand of just one man? I don't know if you can do some math quickly. I'm, I'm not good at math. <laughs> but let's imagine that Samson killed one man every 30 seconds. How long it take to kill 1,000 men? It will be over a week probably. And he fought. And he killed with a jawbone 1,000 men. Days in a row. What a fight. This was only possible because Samson was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a clear Picture of God fulfilling what He promised to Manuel and his wife. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. More than that, God has been faithful to the promise He made to Moses in Exodus 33. Even more than that, God has been faithful to the covenant He established with Abraham. God is faithful, my brothers, and His decree Will never fails. He is the author of this story. That's why this is not and cannot be a bad story. This is why I call this a comedy of error. Because when you start to realize everything that is taking place here in this text, you can only be astonished by how amazing this plot is. This is not a bunch of random stories going on together with some random connections. It's all a big plot written. And more than written, decreed by the God Almighty. That's why it never fails. That's why the salvation becomes to the Lord. The great lesson we learn in, pas- in this passage is if Israel's salvation depend on Samson or any other judge, Israel would be doomed. But because the Lord is holy, the Lord is faithful, even with all these misfortunes and even ugly situations, the salvation of the Lord will do take place. We realize that Samson is not the ultimate deliverer. Even with him accomplishing his task, the people is not saved for good by Samson. Samson is in fact portraying a much greater Savior than him, Jesus Christ. He will come to deliver his people for good. He is our Savior. In him, and only in him, we have our salvation. And then we walk towards the last last section of this text, verse 18. And, and, and I think Samson knew it. He knew his dependence on the Lord. The proof of this is the way this chapter ends. Samson, in verse 18, he's exhausted. And rightly so. I mean, he just killed... A thousand men, right? But once again, he acts exactly like Israel. Just as Israel experienced great deliverance from Egypt, Egypt, after crossing the Red Sea, when they crossed the Red Sea, they got into the desert. They questioned God if they now will die of thirst in the desert. Samson here does. Exactly the same thing. Look at verse 18. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And just as God showed His mighty hand to His people in the desert by drying water out of a rock... Here God does exactly the same thing to Samson. This is a figure that just confirms the point I just made. Salvation comes from the Lord and the Lord only. His people must learn to depend on Him. That's why Samson is doing, uh, that's what Samson is doing here. And that's why he is in the hall of faith in Hebrews, in the New Testament in the letter to the Hebrews Samson belongs to that list the how of faith because here in this passage he is demonstrating saving faith in depending on God alone if you look with attention to verse 18 it begins saying that Samson he called upon the Lord the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 He's going to quote the prophet Joel. Not our prophet Joel Smith. The prophet Joel from the Bible. Uh, He's going to say that those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here we see Samson calling upon the Lord. I think this is the most powerful message that I believe this chapter represents. And and to close the sermon... I want to offer you uh, a picture, a Trinitarian picture of salvation in this chapter. Because I believe what we have here is literally a comedy of errors. Where the writer uses a series of misadventures and unusual events to achieve the result. And with lots of humor. Because what God is doing... While this is taking place, if you look to Psalm chapter 2, two verses specifically, Psalms chapter 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord Hold, on, hold them in derision. It was not a mode of speech. But I believe this is a, literally a comedy of errors. Showing what happens to those who are enemies of the Lord. And plot against him and his anointing. The Bible literally says that God laughs at them. This plot is God using Unusual situations to bring salvation to his people. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit acting in history, enabling his chosen ones to act with grace, which they otherwise will not be able to do. And these chosen ones are types, pictures of your Definitive savior, Jesus Christ. The one who did what no one else could do. Which was to fulfill all righteousness and bring deliverance for good. So that's why I hope the next time you read this account of Samson. You have the vision of the big picture instead of putting yourself in Samson's shoes and trying to figure out what you should and what you should not do, you will understand that Samson's condition is Israel's condition, which is your, our condition. Fallen creatures in desperate need of grace and deliverance. Once you understand this, you can read this text and do what verse 18 is shouting what is the only solution for those who find themselves in this situation to call upon the name of the Lord or greater and only deliverer, and you shall be saved pray with me heavenly father almighty God we thank you for this word we have just heard We thank you for your revelation through scriptures. We thank you for being a faithful God, for your providence. Thank you for providing us a deliverer, Jesus Christ, your only Son. We thank you for his sacrifice in the cross that brought us life. And we are now reconciled with you by his sacrifice. Because he is the true and only deliverer. Help us to take this truth to our hearts and never forget it. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.